what I learned there is that there is an understanding that bureaucracies are neutral. That is not at all true. It was interesting. It's a very dynamic process to see how power is used to maintain and recreate the processes of gender discrimination. And so what was happening was these powerful men were allowing gender and women's agencies on terms that they themselves dictated. Welcome back to the Rethinking Development Podcast. My name is Safa and I will be your host as we speak with and learn from practitioners of all backgrounds and affiliations around the world. In our conversations, we aim to rethink ethical behavior and best practices through the lived experiences and personal reflections of different practitioners. Our guest today is Dr. Jeanette Gorong. Jeanette's career has focused on gender equality within climate change-related organizations. She is the founder and executive director of Women Organizing for Chain in Agriculture and Natural Resource Management, a global network with over 1,300 members in 113 countries that supports capacity building for women's leadership and empowerment and gender integration. Jeanette is also the innovator of the W plus standard that measures, quantifies, and monetizes impacts of projects on women through the use of a results-based financing approach, providing ways for companies, governments, organizations, and individuals to confidently drive and measure social change and economic empowerment for women. The W Plus was awarded the Momentum for Change Women for Results Award by the UNFCC in 2016 for application to, to Nepal's biogas program that sold W Plus impact units and shared revenues with women. Jeanette has also co-founded the Women and Climate Impact Fund with a financial expert to mobilize blended financial investments in climate mitigation and adaptation projects that incorporate high levels of gender equality and women's empowerment. The fund also uses the W plus standard to assure quality impacts across its portfolio. Jeanette has expertise in certification and standards, monitoring and evaluation, training, research, gender and organizational analysis, policy advocacy, and network building. She has managed projects for the Asian Development Bank and other UN and bilateral development agencies and led and served on numerous committees, including the Forest Dialogue Steering Committee, gender expert of the SGIAR Participatory Research and Gender Analysis Program, advisor to the Forest Stewardship Council, FAO's Policy Committee on Incentives for Ecosystem Services, and more. Jeanette, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much, Safa. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Could you please tell us how your interest in this type of work in this field first began and what were some of the earlier experiences in the beginning of your career that kind of shaped the future route that you took? It's a great question. And of course, I have to look way back. But as a young woman, I was always an environmentalist. And as an American, for me, that meant interest in forestry and various natural resources. But the life-changing event for me was my experience as a Peace Corps volunteer in Nepal. And this was at a time in the late 70s when, you know, I was living in a village and there I came to understand the role of communities in forest management. I think up until that time, 
I thought of environment as purely something related to animals and plants. And I, I was not aware of the, the incredible importance of communities in people in, in management of these resources. This was the late 1970s. So it was kind of the dawn of social forestry, which actually did begin in Nepal at that time. But I was living in a remote village up in the hills of Nepal and watched as members of my village started to set fire to forests to convert them into agriculture land so they could have more ownership over this. So this interest in environment when I was finished with my Peace Corps, by the way, I highly recommend people think about an experience like Peace Corps. It is this life-changing event. You'll never see the world in the same way. But that interest took me to study forestry. That's really where I think this is a realization of a sector that is dominated by men. And not only dominated by men, but by a very masculine understanding of the profession. So I understood this at the time. And I think I believed that I needed to become what I call a card-carrying member of that old boys network of foresters in order to gain recognition as a woman. I understood that that was even more precious and valuable and necessary for me than it would be for a man. I have to say that Forestry is an exclusive profession, and when two foresters meet, they'll often ask each other where they studied, and that's because there's not so many forestry institutions, and I have to say that all of the forestry institutions, including those that are the top ones in the U.S. and around the world, are difficult places for women, and I, and I know this right up into the present from discussions with, with young foresters. I'll tell you how it's masculine. For example, uh, when I talk to young women from studying forestry in Latin America, they would tell me how distressing it was that they're not allowed to, for example, wear makeup or wear high heels into classrooms, which sounds like a petty thing. But for women, it was really part of their identity. The time I studied forestry, there were few women studying. And I'll tell you one thing was we never wore dresses or anything that looked feminine. And I, I often think that in this country, the ideal forester is someone who looks like Paul Bunyan. And Paul Bunyan was a mythical character in, in North America that was a big guy with big muscles and a big beard. And so I think forestry students tried to look like Paul Bunyan, which is a strange thing. And even as women, we tried to look like Paul Bunyan, except we couldn't grow the beard. So that was, I think, for me, how I got started in this. My, my focus on gender grew very much out of my own lived experience of, again, living and working in the rural community uh, in Nepal, and, and then, again, working across the entire Himalayan region. And here is where I watched women in villages and fields toil to plant, to weed, to harvest rice, for example, bent over all the time and in infested kind of waters. And I watched them walk long distances to get to fuel wood supplies and where they had to cut and then haul this fuel wood on their backs. And, and I watched women working 16 hours a day. And, and that's not an exaggeration. That's up at 4 a.m. to do water collection and get the fires going in the kitchen and then closing down the kitchen at only about you know, 8 p.m. That's a long day. And while they're doing all this, in many cases, their menfolk were sitting in tea shops 
drinking tea and alcoholic beverages and usually talking politics. And it was just, it's, it's extraordinary to see this huge difference between what a women's day looks like and what a man's day looks like. And I think this really sort of annoyed me, just the injustice of this situation. And then to further augment that, working in international development and in organizations that were formulating policies and projects for agriculture, for forestry, natural resource management, and finding that most of these ignore women's roles in those various sectors, even though they were the primary actors and managers. And I think to this day, there's this very strong normative idea of who are primary actors in these fields. Uh, and I'll give you an example. I worked in an office in Kathmandu for many years. My boss was the head of the agriculture division of this organization. And I'll never forget this, but he had a photo on his wall of a woman plowing a field in India. And the narrative, the title of the photo that he had put there said, women helping men in agriculture. And there's not a man in the picture. And this is just classic. I think everywhere around the world, we think that the farmer is a man and maybe his wife is his helper when nothing could be further from the truth. But that simple changing in, in normative ways of thinking be key to unlocking changes in development sector programs. Very interesting. As you say, these gender dynamics are evident not just in the way labor is divided or valued, but also in images, in metaphors, in the ways we speak about issues. Early on in your career, when you were working as a gender and development specialist for the International Center for Integrated Mountain Development, what were the practices or projects that you were working on in terms of trying to challenge these normative ideas or these stereotypes? And what were some of the challenges you faced in trying to create these changes? I think, you know, initially working as a forester in that field, and then at some point after I'd been there a few years, my boss said, okay, Jeanette, you're interested in gender, so I'm going to task you with now leading the process of gender mainstreaming or the integration of gender into this institution. And the institution is, is really close to my heart. This is an institution that works across eight countries, the Himalayas. I had amazing autonomy to pursue the projects that I was interested in. It was wonderful. However, when it came to this task of integrating it across everybody else's programs and projects, it was a very challenging job. And I think the reason they asked me to do this was because of donor pressure. I mean, we had European donors who were insisting that the institution become more gender sensitive. And so I took it on with great glee. Well, five years later, <laughs> I felt the need to write a PhD thesis on it as a sense-making exercise, because it, it's not, it was not a straightforward process. And to give you a clue as to how that went, the title of my PhD thesis was Narratives of Resistance enacting gender in an international development organization. And that's because I think through this process of leading the process of gender mainstreaming, I became aware of, oh, we looked at, I looked at seven years of data. And, and of course, what was unique about this was I was an insider into this institution. So my PhD was a rare opportunity to see the guts of the institution from the inside. Uh, an outsider would not have been able to see what I could see. But I was able to analyze the actions of male and female staff 
And I saw how it was both constructing, maintaining, and challenging the gender culture of the workplace. So I looked at not only the structural aspects, but also the cultural features of the organization, which is where it gets very interesting and where you can see how power operating in various dimensions was able to maintain the gender inequalities within the context. So that's where the resistance lie, and that's where it became so difficult. I was seeing how powerful men inside this organization, and again, this is South Asia, so very bureaucratic, maybe more so than other parts of the world, but I have to think this is common everywhere. I think that development institutions are gendered. All institutions are gendered, but development institutions are gendered through their policies, procedures, and cultures that are really designed and adapted to meet the needs of men, as well as men on the communities. It's easier, I mean, I think if women had had the power, we might have done the same thing, but we didn't. So men have defined the way this works, and it's certainly easier for men to work with other men. You don't have to you know, sort of balance your programs around the complex, varied responsibilities of women who are up at four in the morning, work till eight, for example. What I learned there as well is that there is an understanding that bureaucracies are neutral. That is not at all true. It was interesting. It's a very dynamic process to see how power is used to maintain and recreate the processes of gender discrimination. And so what was happening was these powerful men were allowing gender and women's agencies on terms that they themselves dictated. And and so power was being enacted behind the scenes so that, for example, myself, who was supposed to be in charge of this, I didn't always see what was happening. And then I would have rare glimpses of the reality. For example, we would have a staff party. There would be alcohol consumption and men's tongues would start to loosen up and they would say things like, well, you know, we all understand that women can never be fully equal to us in terms of doing their professional responsibilities and things like this that would have been jaw dropping if they had said this in a, in a public meeting, for example, but they never did. So that was how I got to see this insider's glimpse into how things are maintained And as women of the organization, we were also super inclusive. We were not very many women across the organization. So certainly we, by necessity, we also had to include all the secretaries and the cleaners and everybody. And so when we did that, that was also very challenging to them because now we crossed over not only the gender line, but a class line. And that was also extremely upsetting to, I think, the men of this bureaucracy. So their reaction was to sort of lash back against that when it started to become something serious. And then they were doing things like altering the language of our memos. (laughs) That was phenomenal to me. They actually changed language and then put it out there and said this was the narrative by the women in the organization, things like that. Another thing that was keen was the boss who was very keen. I mean, he himself was European and very keen to show that the institution was gender sensitive, had a meeting with all of us women on the first uh, Women's Day event. And when we placed our demands to him, he was absolutely shocked because his expectation would be that our demand was for toilets. And I kid you not, all of us were asking for representation at the highest levels of the decision-making bodies within institution. He was not expecting that. 
and actually thought we would ask for toilets, which none of us did. Wow, there's so many <laughs> fascinating points in everything you just said. <laughs> but um, to follow up at least on one thing, so you mentioned that the push to do the gender mainstreaming work was actually on the part of the donor, but then it's interesting that there was a backlash by the male-dominated management as well. In that work, you know, you mentioned the title of your thesis was A Narrative of Resistance. So when you experienced that pushback or that backlash, what were kind of the strategies, if any, that were helpful or that you thought could be used to continue to resist, to continue to call for change? You know, I look back on my PhD. Actually, by the way, the, the PhD reads like a novel because it really is the story of this process that happened over a period of five years. And in my conclusion, at the time, I, I felt as if not much progress had been made as a result of this. That our strategy was, as I said, to bring together all women across the organization. We did things like we started daycare centers, and we just kept pushing to be, and it was never granted during my time there, but we kept pushing for the gender person or the gender team to be represented at senior management meetings, which were held every week. And we could not get that to get approved. And that was the most strategic thing. However, I have to say, and, and so even in the PhD, my conclusion is that if we've had any impact at all, it's been at the individual level. We have opened women's eyes in this organization about these hidden processes. We've kind of exposed this normative aspects of gender discrimination here and how they're enacted We've kind of, we called the play. I mean, we basically called out to men what they were doing. So we brought awareness to women. And my hope was, even after I left the organization, that the women who remained would be able to pick up on this and continue. And in fact, that happened. And I, I couldn't be prouder than to say that today that organization has a very strong gender division that is well represented at the senior level and that itself has a staff of five or six others, including some men on that group that's really been effective and they're well recognized by donors. And so I think it's a powerful story about if you do this right, it it's really works out well for everybody. But I have to say, I often say to people that I have great empathy for anybody who's trying to mainstream gender into one of these male-dominated kind of organizations. I did it for five years. I think that's about the life cycle of a gender mainstreamer is five years. And then I always say, after that, you quit to do something easy, like have another child or write a PhD thesis. It's just extremely tough and it's not appreciated by anybody because you have to be very diplomatic. It requires a certain kind of skills. And I like the men in that organization. I got along with them. I wasn't seen as some horrible woman who was trying to cause trouble all the time. I loved the organization. I loved working there. It was like a big family. It was hard for me to see what was actually going on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm, absolutely. As you say, the impact on the individual level as compared to kind of a systemic change, that's often a tension that we speak about with the different guests. Can we speak a bit about you deciding to found in 2004 Women Organizing for Change in Agriculture and Natural Resource Management and what the work of that organization is, especially thinking about individual level versus systemic level? 
And one of your later questions, you're probably going to ask me what motivates me. So (laughs) yes, feel free to answer that as well. (laughs) Well, Why am I innovating all these things all the time? Well, I'm motivated by frustration with the status quo. I think frustration is the mother of innovation. So I've been obviously very frustrated in many different ways. And, And I think what I understood through my global networks was I was in touch with so many other women who were working in international development agencies, whether they be the UN or otherwise, or NGOs that were also working to bring gender into sectors that were male dominated. And I understood that my struggle was common to all of these other women. And that's, of course, very powerful empowerment when women understand that their struggle is shared. So we started understanding that we felt we were being prevented from working on gender issues within our organizations and by the very organizations we worked for that were out there claiming that they're doing gender to their donors and to the world at large. And yet inside, we were being prevented and having our hands tied in various ways. So once we realized that this was common between, remember there was a woman in Zambia who worked in the forestry department, or my friends who were in high-level positions in FAO, and we understood that we needed to have a space for our voice. So much as in order to get women's voices heard at the community level, you often have to break them away from men and give them a separate safe space to talk. And we understood, even though we were kind of high professionals in these organizations, we did not have our own space. And we needed to have our own space, to have our own voices, but also so that we could go out and speak around the world as a group of women working in these sectors. So that's where we formed WOCON. Uh, The first thing I did was to go around the world and hold meetings, one or two day events with women who were already working in these sectors of agriculture, forestry, water, and just hear, just listen, just listen to them. And oh my goodness, I mean, it was tearful. I mean, women were coming and just talking about their experiences and they started to cry. It was the sense of I studied to be a professional, and yet the way I'm treated in my organization is as a cleaner or a tea maker or a secretary, or I'm interrupted all the time, cannot fully enact my duties as a professional. So there was this sense that, okay, this is worldwide. I did this West Central Africa. I did this in Eastern Southern Africa, in South Asia, the Southeast Asia. And the story is the same. And in some ways, I'm going to tell you that the story is still the same. And I know only recently from a group of my colleagues back in Nepal that still within, again, tears from women foresters as they describe their great frustration in the workplace in these issues. So we needed Wokan. We formed Wokan. I think in the early days, what we did was a lot of advocacy around agriculture development, forestry development. You know, looking at this now, and this is what, 15 years later, I think it's been a long slog, but I think things have really changed. And I I want to talk about this a little bit as well, about now as the world turns towards so strongly into climate change, thinking about responses in this sector. So, so many of the climate change related sectors are, again, these male dominated sectors, agriculture, energy, forestry, water management. And so the climate related institutions, financing mechanisms still do not fully understand the role of women 
in climate mitigation, climate adaptation. And they don't understand yet the value in including women into this, nor will I add, even more importantly, the risk to your investments if you do not include women. Understanding that the world's farmers are primarily women. The world's forest managers are to a large degree women. Water managers are women. If you exclude them from your processes, from your benefits, from your financing, What's to say that they're not going to do something that's have negative impacts on your project? And, and I think it's particularly important because in many places, the narrative in these sectors is still understanding women as victims of climate change. And I will not use what I call the V word, although I just did, because that implies that they don't have agency. It negates the women's roles in the management of these resources. And from an investment side of things, I mean, who wants to invest in a victim? I mean, who? nobody, right? Let's instead recognize the agency of women, the roles of responsibility, the tremendous things they do to nurture the planet with no compensation, I would say, in almost all cases, right? And I think within this COVID world, this is one thing that's now become increasingly a part of the narrative is understanding the high value of people working in service industries that are caring in hospitals and families and et cetera. That's very female-dominated sectors. And we can extend that idea to taking care of the climate as well and stop seeing women as victims in, the, in this uh, climate world. Absolutely. So in that light, could you also tell us about establishing the W plus standard and the process of quantifying or verifying benefits for women and inclusion of women? So I, I like to say the W plus standard was really motivated out of three things. One is a sense of the frustration, again, use that beautiful F word, that came because those of us who've been working to mainstream gender for so many years I mean, if we step back and think about what's been the impact of that, it's not great. Gender mainstreaming as a strategy is very much debated, but it's it's kind of a necessary but not sufficient uh, approach to gender equality uh, things. So it was a frustration with the fact that a lot of the work was being measured only by outputs, maybe inputs and outputs, and not by results. So there's a question of accountability that needed to be raised here. And there's a lot of checking the box when it comes to gender. So even very large projects that can mention gender in one paragraph or a sentence or two within a project document, the donor may just say, okay, yes, check. They, they've agreed. So that's not good enough. We wanted, to, we wanted to recognize that. Two, we wanted to get at the fact that gender isn't being, this gender integration I like to say there's neither a carrot nor a stick that's been big enough to make a difference, particularly within environment, agriculture-related organizations. I mean, they don't do gender unless they have to, or there's a good reason to. And, and I don't think that reason has really existed. Even the donors have not. I mean, there's a prevailing view that, oh, all the donors require gender. Well, like I said, maybe they do, but often it's very easily attainable by checking the box. So that's not what we're talking about. So we said, can we develop an incentive system? Can we incentivize those environment organizations to do something that brings benefits to women and has an inclusion of gender equality within the projects? Now, what we found at the time was we started to learn about the carbon market. We started to learn 
about the way you can measure environmental impacts through the, the tracing of carbon, the measurement of carbon. And then the World Bank and others who developed the carbon market found that that could be a way to bring new funding into uh, environmental management and also incentivize people, including individuals, to do things that could get them this added revenue. So we had this very crazy idea and said, could we do the same for women's empowerment and gender equality? Could we incentivize a process through which organizations that do something for women's empowerment can have that measured, can it be certified, and can even monetize those impacts through the creation of a unit, a W-plus unit, that that could be sold? Can we create a market uh, around this? And in, in some ways, that's the key question is who purchases these units? And it's a challenge. We don't have a ready-made market out there for social good. But so one of the strategies we've also been able to do is it's possible to stack a W-plus unit onto a carbon unit. So, for example, in a project that's a climate change-related mitigation project that's producing GHG or carbon units and simultaneously doing good things for women, we have a way to kind of stack the women's empowerment as a co-benefit onto the carbon and put out in the market. But otherwise, there are also companies and organizations that just want to be supporting women's empowerment, maybe to contribute to reaching their SDG goal number five for women's empowerment and gender equality, and doing so in a very real way, transparent way that's trusted and that attacks what we call pinkwashing. So is it that organizations who think they qualified or are interested in being part of the W plus standard, they reach out to you or you reach out to them? Both, if we hear about good ones, but there, we certainly have many projects that reach out to us as well. And I think when projects start to understand that the process of measuring, I mean, at first they may be, especially if they're environment-related organizations not working on gender, it sounds maybe complicated. But that's the whole point of the standard. The standard is also a design framework that you can use to adapt your project. And in some cases, it takes very little adaptation. And, and here, here's where this, this project that we won the uh, Women for Results Award from the UNFCC was a perfect example. So this is a biogas project in Nepal being implemented by the government across the country that is getting biogas digesters into the households of Nepalis across the country. It's a beautiful design because it's linked to a toilet. So they also got the objective of having toilets added to homesteads. And then the toilet is actually linked directly to a biogas digester. So the government of Nepal is doing this and they're producing the carbon units which are being sold to Nordic countries, etc. What they didn't think about was going on at the same time was women's lives were being transformed by this. We use the W plus just to measure time saving. And in this case, women using a biogas digester save two and a half hours every day of their life. And this doesn't even account for the hardship of walking, of cutting the wood, saving the forest. It's simply measured time saving for women, two and a half hours a day. You know, that's a perfect case to see that, in fact, this was a project that already was creating those benefits for women, but they didn't measure. And when you don't measure it, you don't see it. So I think my suspicion is there are many other projects out there, be they for water adaptation or forestry, energy or whatever, that are simply doing fantastic things for women, but only measuring and monetizing on the carbon aspect of it. I think that can change. 
Absolutely. As you say, if you don't measure it, you don't see it or value it. When it comes to measuring or evaluation, what are some of the changes maybe that you've witnessed over the years or have there been any changes when it comes to programs or projects related to measuring and evaluating women's empowerment or participation? So I think when we first started, we took a look at all the other existing standards and certifications, and there were one or two, and we understood that people were not using them because they were too difficult. They took too much time. You know, this is the problem in measurement. You want to develop a system that's rigorous, but not onerous, and, and, and so it's workable for organizations. Otherwise, they won't use it. So we found that the existing ones were a bit like that. So we, we tried to create something and give as much guidance as possible. So the standard has methods for six domains that were determined by women's groups in Kenya and Nepal. When we went to them in the early days and we said, what is women's empowerment? What does it mean to you? What should we measure? And they identified the same in both cases, time-saving. And at the time, the world was not really thinking about time-saving. Time is an asset, but of course it is. Time, income, and assets knowledge and education, uh, health, and leadership, and food security. So our team developed methods and indicators for each of those six what we call domains. So we're trying to make it as easy as possible for a project to incorporate this. And as I said, you can use it as a design mechanism. You shouldn't be afraid that, oh, what we've done, we're not good, we're going to try, we're going to fail, we won't get certified. That's not the point, because the whole point is to measure where you are now and what progress you will achieve within, I don't know, a year, two years, you tell us what period of time you want to measure. And it's possible, like in the case of Nepal, where in fact, the project had already done these benefits for women. So we just instantly were able to measure those benefits and generate units out of that. So I think the point here is to make it as easy as possible for people, but still hold on to the rigor. And since we came out with the W plus, we were the first standard certification system that looked at women at the community level, not at the workplace. So there are other standards that would look at uh, how many women are on boards, how many women are senior staff. And we argue that that's wonderful, but it doesn't necessarily translate into benefits for women at the community level, grassroots level. We would, we're still waiting. We want to see some company, some supply chain, use the W plus to certify its supply chain in ways that it's benefiting women. Here's a place, Safa, I think there's enormous opportunity, which is to have a product with a label on it that signifies if you purchase this item, you're in fact helping women in the supply chain. Currently, nothing exists like that, except there's a couple of small coffee labels that will do that. But you can imagine knowing that consumers, women are something like 70, 80% of the consumers around the world. Why don't we have some sort of a label on a good or service that indicates this. The third part that motivated the W plus, it was really key to us, is that we at Wokan are firm believers in the tremendous potential of women's collectives and women's organizations at the community level across the world. We see that these groups have amazing opportunities to affect food security, climate change, and poverty. However, they're not receiving funds or capacity building efforts. 
they're looked over, they're, they're missed. And so we also, when we developed the W+, we said, we get to determine the rules of the standard. This is our standard. So we're going to say that at least 20% of the value, like if you create a W plus unit and you sell it on the market, 20% at least of that revenue from the sale of that unit has to go directly into the hands of those women's groups at the community level. And they get to determine what to do with it. We don't tell them, you have to buy more cook stoves with it, for God's sake. No, they know what they need to do with this. And in the case of Nepal, they used it for things like, it was amazing what they did. They started a new water supply system. A lot of put it back into their savings and loan groups. One amazing group of women decided they wanted to use the funds to subsidize poorer women to have biogas projects that they couldn't otherwise afford to have. We need to do a lot more studies of how these kind of revenue sharing, benefit sharing mechanisms. We, we haven't yet done that impact study, but we'd love to. In terms of uh, funding and working with donors, what have been some of the changes maybe you've witnessed over the last few years in terms of the conditions or the availability of funds, or sometimes there's competition amongst organizations that work in the same field for funding? Could you speak to us a bit about navigating that area of this type of work? This is the topic dearest and closest to my heart. I want to say from the start, women's organizations at all levels are starving. And, and it would, it would be, you would even be shocked if I told you that some of the women-led organizations that you've probably heard of barely have enough funds to keep the lights on and keep running for the next months. And it's not because of the COVID virus. This is the dilemma that all of us are facing. We used to have core funding. And I have to put in a pitch for core funding because core funding is what enables innovation. When you're just managing projects and fee-for-service types of of operations, you just can't have the money you need and the time you need to do innovative thinking. All of these organizations, like I said, women's organizations in general are not funded, are not appreciated. And I see enormous need for women's organizations at regional levels, at national levels, not just the grassroots level. You always hear about women at the grassroots. That's fine. But there's so many opportunities and needs for other women's organizations to act as intermediaries and to assure that those grassroots level organizations develop the capacities they need to move forward. There's also been, I think, a really interesting upsurge in gender lens investing, which is fantastic. And that is, of course, where investors, right down to personal individuals, want their funds to be used to support women. However, much of that is for women enterprises or women uh, entrepreneurs. Again, it's great. But I I will say that a lot of the women we work with will never self-identify as an enterprise or an entrepreneur. I mean, most women farmers even though they may be trading their their products on market, would not fall into that category of being a women-owned business. Therefore, they're not investable. Whether everybody's looking for a financial return back on the investment, even impact investors, this is a problem. So sure, women-owned businesses is one area that we can have investments in. There could be more investments into climate-related green businesses. That's great. But there will never be enough. There are not enough women-owned companies in the world that can make, I think, a significant 
gen in, in, for example, finding ways to support gender equality, women's empowerment in relation to climate change, for example. On the other side, those of us who are women's organizations and women NGOs, we need to learn also a little bit to become social enterprises. We need to show how we have services that are valued and have a financial value in themselves. We are underpaid and undervalued. And I think often the case we find with donors is sometimes we think they think we work for free. I don't know how to otherwise explain the fact that some of the policies of foundations and donors is to allow, for example, only like an 8% increase as, as that we could put onto a project budget that's supposed to pay for our overhead administration costs. So let us behave like businesses in some way and let us let let the donors and funders recognize our value as businesses. But we also need, as NGOs, I think, to also become a little bit more up to date and, and start to thinking of what value to do we bring to the larger group of, of what we could call funders and not just the traditional grant donors. And with bilateral agencies and countries, we have not uh, been lucky. Maybe it's luck. I don't know what it is. I mean, sometimes what we hear is that we're too small. And we know this. We know that over the years, bilateral donors are shifting very much into sending their funds to the World Bank, for example. And what they say is the transaction costs are too high for them to funnel money to smaller NGOs. We have to learn to adapt to that. Maybe we need to form more consortiums or be more collaborative ourselves. But, you know, we have to spend so much time on fundraising that it's not the best use of our time. Mm -hmm. It's such a significant challenge. Could you also speak to us a bit about founding the Women in Climate Impact Fund and what are some of the projects that that fund has supported? I can't say that we're yet supporting projects. We're still in the early stages of fundraising for that and getting going. But again, the idea was until about a year ago, we were not seeing much understanding or interest in financing at the nexus of gender and climate. And still, it's a struggle. But I think in the last year, we've seen many more of the climate finance group understand gender needs and the gender lens investors understand the opportunities to invest in climate. But those two things were, that's another thing that I get incentivized by, is that one is the frustration. But the other thing is seeing this ways to cross over these different sectors to cross over silos. That that excites me tremendously. So I, you know, seeing that there needed to be the space at the nexus and not seeing that. And so determining that maybe what we needed, besides the W plus standard, could we develop a fund structure that could start to accept money from various kind of donors and funders who were interested in this nexus, but couldn't imagine what does that look like? What does a project look like that's a good project for gender and climate. And we're still we're still developing those. I think there's still an interest. I think there's an interest now really more than ever by individuals who want to invest their private money into both of those areas. So it's been a, a chance to to uh, try to attract donors. It's not easy building a fund, oh my goodness. And then, you know, we're, we're still looking for anchor investors in this and grant-related funds that can be used as catalytic funding. But we do see a way to make returns to investors. And that is, again, because the W-plus standard 
which is used to across all of these projects, has this opportunity of generating uh, returns in the form of W plus units. So not to get too much into this, but for impact investors who say that they're interested in impact first, this is a chance to walk away with a unit of impact. Now, whether you want to monetize that impact or not, is that's up to you. But if you're the investor and you invest in a project and it generates W plus units, you now have units that you can stand behind that ascertain that your project has produced this impact for women's empowerment. There's not many investors who are there yet. There's many who are talking about it. That's one way. But the other way to generate the return within this fund is just to recognize that there are existing climate projects and climate mitigation projects that are already generating profits. So this is really where we see the fund can do. We don't try to fund everything or be the fund, but we try to have partners and arrangements with other projects and funders in the climate sector who are already developing and managing projects that are producing carbon benefits, for example, but that could, with a little bit of extra input and technical assistance, be able to add gender and women's empowerment as well. So that's where the fund's headed, into sort of being a partner co-funder with others. So we're in the process now of identifying those other funds and those other projects that are interested to work with us with that. Fantastic. It sounds like such an important idea and plan that you have, and I wish you all the best with developing it further. I also wanted to speak to you about your role as a leader or as a, as a manager, as a founder. What have been some of the lessons you've learned or experience you've had when it comes to leading people or being the head or the lead behind the idea, pushing it along, advocating for it, working with others? Do you have some thoughts that you could share with us about taking up that role and being in that seat of a leader? It's an interesting question. I think I've done too little reflection on my own leadership. I mean, Wokan teaches a wonderful leadership course for women and for men to get them how to better support women leaders. And we think a lot about feminine forms of leadership in opposition to the dominant sort of hegemonic masculine forms of leadership. And Maybe I'm hedging away from talking for myself. I'll get there. But, you know, what we've seen other women do that absolutely inspires me is to see women leaders who practice this kind of inclusive feminine forms of leadership. And we have some amazing examples of women who we know well have done this. And the first thing is to understand that leadership comes not from only an official title. And that's one of the things women had trouble understanding. And women would call themselves, oh, I'm not a leader because I don't have a title. And then when they learned that actually what they're practicing is already leadership, which is coordinating, building communities around them. It's very much focused on relationship building. I like to think that that's what I've done over my career. I think I don't have enough feedback from people around me who tell me what I do best and what I don't do best in that way. But I think it is very much about relationship building. It's interesting during COVID when we watch so many organizations become desk-oriented places where people are no longer going to their offices. I mean, Wokan has worked like this since the beginning. And that's what enables us to be nimble and we work with people across the world who are our members, but also our friends and the ones we've been working with in face-to-face ways. Once you develop face-to-face relationships, then it's really easy to then become 
a group that works across Skype and Zoom and whatever. I mean, with my staff in Europe and Asia, we do weekly meetings on Skype. And it's just almost as if we're in the same room together. We know each other well, we work together well. Is that a form of leadership or is that just managing the organization? I don't know. But here's one thing I believe more strongly than anything else is that individuals need to have their agency within their workplace. They need to have what we call space to maneuver. It's every single person in an organization of any kind have their own space of deciding how they work, what they work on in the process they do this in, a manner in which they do it. And I'm a huge believer in thinking everybody needs to have their independence and their space to develop, design, create. I think uh, the need to create is a human requirement. I think I know it is for me, and I assume it is for everybody else. And so I think for me, leadership and management means allowing your staff and your partners those opportunities to innovate, to create. And it doesn't mean it's perfect, but it, it's, it allows people to innovate and take initiatives. Those are wonderful ideas to reflect on for all of us. We touched briefly on your, your interest in working across sectors, bridging silos, the intersection of different areas of work. How do you see this pandemic impacting the work that women will do in the future in terms of agriculture and natural resource management? In some cases, we've heard stories of in different countries, farmers, for example, having to burn their crops or destroy their crops because there's no longer a market for it or different challenges in different contexts. What are some of the maybe not necessary worries, but observations or thoughts yeah. you have around how this pandemic is impacting women in the sector? So I, I'm worried, of course. I'm also worried for us who work in the development industry. I'm not sure what we can do. I mean, for us, we had a number of, we have a number of activities we're supposed to implement, but we can't travel. So what do we do about that? We've been thinking at Wokan in the last couple of days about, for us, we're connecting the pandemic with the climate, right? What have we learned in this pandemic that we're going to apply to climate? And we've been listening and attending webinars and reading thinking about this. Here's what I want to say. I, I think many things have emerged that we see as critical for climate resilience. So it's kind of a post-COVID recovery and climate resilience and where we see things focusing. I've mentioned a couple, but here's what I think. One, nature-based solutions. More than ever, we're seeing a focus on biodiversity, conservation, forest restoration. There's huge spaces for women, as I've already mentioned around that. The second thing we see is the focus on social safety nets. We, as I mentioned, believe that women's organizations are absolutely key to everything. Women's organizations have special relationships and network with the community members. We've seen women's organizations in times of disasters reach out and just take charge of things and manage things very effectively. Again, I think they are key. But they need recognition, they need support to assure their sustainability and their adaptation to these changing environments. We've seen in this country, in the U.S., we've seen now more and more focus on networks, social safety nets. So that's that's been highlighted. We've seen these women leaders around the world have been the most effective ones at managing these pandemics. There's a recognition now, feminine principles, compassion, inclusion with men as well as women at all levels, from communities to global institutions. I think we've seen focus on that. We've seen how families are more the most important thing. And we've seen how income for families is critical. We see how benefit sharing, ideally in the form of cash, 
is better than microloans. I heard that on one webinar. Cash is better than microloans for disasters. Cash transfers are better at providing assets to women than employment schemes and the whole household benefits. So that fits into our understanding through the W plus how we share revenues with women, cash revenues, for example. We've seen how we're all starting to value the care roles of women. And we've seen it for the family and the household, but we're going to now enlarge this to think of the planet. And we're going to look at how women are nurturing the planet. And we're going to figure out how we have to be compensated for that work. And I think this follows from what we've seen of these women's caregiving roles through the pandemic. We've also seen everybody staying at home. So suddenly the idea of childcare and the value of childcare facilities becomes huge. We've seen how men need to share the burdens of women in the household. And men who are staying home may now suddenly understand those burdens in ways they didn't see before. We've seen, again, a focus on health and well-being, mental well-being, how to extend that into climate resilience and understanding human health being related to planetary health. I mentioned investment. So now increasingly, I'm hearing talk about this idea of impact investments with multiple returns that include social returns, environmental returns, as well as financial returns, and how this is required to build resilience to the pandemics, as well as resilience to climate. Gosh, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've seen, I'm watching on television, I'm seeing advertisements on the TV that are now all about They're not pushing the brand. They're not pushing the profit. They're not saying go out and buy our product. They're pushing this fact that we're all in this together. Focus on the family. We're going to focus on taking care of each other. That's amazing. That's really something new. There's there's questions now into the capitalist system. And is that just not what's needed for a pandemic, but extended into the climate as well? Two more things I'll mention. The fact that institutions need to change. Institutions need to become more nimble, more learning, more inclusive. And they have to bring the abilities of all of their staff, men and women both, to bear on these crises and to learn from others. That's the only way they're going to survive. And then I'll say last thing, I think, is that the focus on sustainable food chains with a focus on local food production that increases food security in these uncertain times. Again, recognizing that women are the primary farmers of the world, even in this country of the U.S. And how do we help those farmers now learn climate-smart agriculture practices so they can do this? I mean, I live in Hawaii. I live on an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. When we talk about sustainability as a very different, real sense to us than when you talk about sustainability in a conference in New York, Washington, Geneva. This is real here. We're worried about how we continue to feed ourselves. Our islands can only produce, are so far only producing 10 to 15% of what's consumed here. So this is for us, becomes very real. And I think it's on a global scale as well. We have to think about local food production and markets and how those now relate to a climate perspective. So that's just a few of my thoughts. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Every one of those can be a conversation in itself. And they're all very important to think about and also connect all the different issues together and look at the, the intersection amongst them. Is there any final thoughts or anything you'd like to share before we wrap up? What I've learned is that everything needs to have a gender lens and a gender approach. So even all these 10 ideas I just meant, men cannot be excluded. Women's empowerment is critical. And it's not just at the grassroots level. It's all the way up into development institutions. And that it, all of these things can be transformational once we understand the power of individuals and we create the enabling environment for them to thrive. 
Wonderful. Absolutely. That's beautifully said. And I just want to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, your experiences. There's so much to learn from all the different points that you made. So we really appreciate it. And thank you so much. And thank you, Saf. It was a great opportunity. I also want to thank our listeners. To keep up with our latest episodes, you can listen to us on your preferred podcast provider and follow us on Instagram, where our handle is at Rethinking Development. If you have any listener questions that you would like me to ask our future guests, please feel free to email them to us at rethinkingdevelopmentpodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all next time. Until then, take care.